0: following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. If you are fairly new to the Artisan community, you may not be aware of one of um, my favorite ministries at Artisan. Um, Pastors shouldn't have favorite ministries, but this one is one of mine. (laughs) Uh, It's the College of Preachers. And uh, that doesn't mean that there's any kind of academic approach to preaching, although that's important, but that's not what the word college means. In this context, college means that we are collegially thinking about the art and craft of writing and delivering sermons. And so there are several lay people at Artisan... um, who occasionally give sermons here, and we talk about that together, and we're kind of developing those gifts in people. And so today we have a a sermon from the College of Preachers, and so I'm delighted to introduce to you and would ask you to welcome Marielle Jensen-Battaglia. Good morning, everyone. As Scott said, my name is Marielle, and I am a member of the College of Preachers. I'm going to be bringing you some thoughts from the lectionary readings for this week in Lent. But before I start with my thoughts, I would like you to focus your thoughts. I want you to be thinking of a time that you were very hungry, the most hungry, perhaps, that you've ever been. So for a lot of us who have kind of a first world upbringing, this might be when you were really sick. Maybe it was a time that you had to fast for a medical procedure. Maybe you were fasting for a religious reason. Or maybe you just weren't able to eat, but the time you were the most hungry. So if you were here for our call to worship, which is from Psalm 63, you'll know that there was a little bit of reference to hunger and thirst in that psalm. It's a psalm of David, and David probably knew a thing or two about being hungry and thirsty. For context, that psalm was likely written while David was kind of in exile in the wilderness the king at the time was Saul, and Saul and David kind of had a love hate relationship, more emphasis on the hate as the relationship progressed. Well, Saul tried to kill David with a spear, basically, and, uh, and then he plotted to kill him in other ways, and so David is exiled out into the wilderness. So during that time, he really got in touch with what it meant to be hungry. And I think that there's no mistake that there's a lot of emphasis on the idea of hunger and how that relates to our relationship with God and our search for God in the Bible, because hunger is a really unifying theme. There's people who were hungry thousands of years ago. There's people who are hungry now. Everyone can relate to that, or most people can relate to that on one level or another. So... For me, when I transition to thinking about these texts and the season that we're in, which is the season of Lent, the thought of hunger doesn't just resonate with the texts, it also resonates with the early Christian church during this time. So the season of Lent in the early Christian church was 40 days leading up to Easter. And at Easter, which it still is, at Easter, new Christians would be baptized. That was the common theme. So, it wasn't easy to be a Christian. In the early Christian church, there was a lot of persecution. You were leaving behind a whole set of cultural values and really changing your whole way of life. So, in preparation for that, the last 40 days before you were baptized, you would be fasting, you'd be meditating, you'd be praying intensively, and many other members of the, the group or congregation that you were going to join might do that along with you. So the idea of of fasting during this time and thinking about hunger during this time has a lot of historic context. Um, And the verses that we're going to look at, the passages today, have this unifying theme of talking about spiritual hunger. So I just want you to be thinking about the time that you were hungry and to be thinking about what that means for your connection to the ancient Christian church a little bit as we then start to read these texts and I hope it will make them a little more present for you. So let's think a little bit about being spiritually hungry. And then after we talk about that, if you can be spiritually hungry, you should be able to be spiritually fed or full. And then we'll, we'll look at what that means. So spiritual hunger. When I think of those words, the first thing that kind of comes to mind is maybe waking up in the morning. I'm a morning person and I love my breakfast. And instead of rushing downstairs to eat Sit my bowl of cereal, and my tea, I would just be consumed with desire to sit down and read my Bible intensively. Like, that would be being spiritually hungry. Or maybe I'd be leaving work, and uh, it would be really late, and I'd have a long day, and I'm tired, and I'm getting a headache, and instead of wanting to get in my car and drive home, I would just drop to my knees in the parking lot because I could not stop myself from praying. I'd just be so hungry for prayer. So I'm someone who's been raised in the Christian church, and I have more or less considered myself a Christian throughout my entire life. I don't know about you, but for me, those type of spiritual hunger experiences are rare to non-existent. It's just very rare that that actually happens. So by defining our sense of spiritual hunger as like an uncontrollable desire to blare Hillsong music at 2 a.m., I think we're limiting our experience. We're limiting what it can mean to be spiritually hungry. If we believe that God is the creator of not only the universe, but ourselves, then there has to be something more innate about being spiritually hungry than desiring something that would classically be considered religious. As I was thinking about this, I was doing a little bit of reading, and I came on this passage from C.S. Lewis. It's from his book, Letters to Malcolm, And I think he does a better job describing that dichotomy or juxtaposition than I can. So let's listen to what he has to say. He's responding to a writer saying that heaven will be like a church because the sole focus or subject will be religion. Lewis takes uh, issue with the idea that religion and church are somehow separate from everything else in life. He says here... He, the writer, has substituted religion for God as if navigation were substituted for arrival or battle for victory or wooing for marriage or in general the means for the end. But even in this present life, there is danger in the very concept of religion. It carries the suggestion that this is one more department of life, an extra department added to the economic, the social, the intellectual, the recreational, and all the other departments but that whose claims are infinite can have no standing as a department. Either it is an illusion or else our whole life falls under it. We have no non-religious activities, only religious or irreligious. Religion nevertheless appears to exist as a department and in some ages to thrive as such. It thrives partly because there exists in many people a love of religious observances. There exists also a delight in religious, as with any other type of organization. Therefore, all sorts of aesthetic, sentimental, historical, political interests are drawn in. Finally, sales of work, the parish magazine, bell ringing, and Santa Claus. None of these are bad things, but none of them is necessarily of more spiritual value than the activities that we call secular. And they are infinitely dangerous when that is not understood. This department of life, labeled sacred, can become an end unto itself, an idol that hides both God and my neighbors. It may even come about that a man's most genuinely Christian actions fall entirely outside of that part of his life he calls religious. And in some cases, I think it it should fall outside of that religious part of your life. So what Lewis is getting at here, pretty eloquently I think, is that we are not created to experience God at these certain moments in our lives. If God exists as a creator of everything, then our sense of being hungry for God needs to be something more organic. Imagine that you are a person who's never heard of Christianity, who doesn't own a Bible, who doesn't know the name Jesus Christ. How can you be hungry to listen to Hillsong music if that's the case, okay? How we're excluding a whole segment of people who are created by God and and uh, theoretically endowed with a desire to connect with God, So. I think that our sense of spiritual hunger could be something more nebulous. It might be just a desire for something you can't quite name. It might be a sense of longing to belong. It might be um, a sense of loneliness. It might be something much less defined than desiring to open the Bible. Although I don't want to exclude that experience. That's certainly a real type of spiritual hunger. So we've sort of established that spiritual hunger can present itself in different ways. Well, if you're kind of a logical person, your next question might be, why are we spiritually hungry? And you don't have to look too far in today's text to figure out what at least the authors of these texts are trying to say about that. Time and time again throughout the Old and New Testaments, hunger is presented as a state that someone might be in, and the response to that hunger is Christ, is Jesus, Let's start in the Old Testament. There's a passage for today from Isaiah. If you're interested, it's uh, page 598 in the Red Bibles. They're below the seats or on the seat backs. This is chapter 55, verses 1 through 9. We're just going to read the part that's relevant to hunger. It says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You that have no money, come, buy and eat. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me, Eat what is good and delight yourself with rich food. Incline your ear, listen to me so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So, what's being referenced here, that covenant as the response to the hunger? You're hungry, you think you're satisfying yourself, you're not quite, here's what's going to satisfy you, uh, is the Davidic covenant. This is a recurring promise in the Old Testament that's generally accepted to mean that God is promising to bring the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through the lineage of David, so descendant of David. Um, That's an Old Testament example. From the New Testament in today's readings, we can turn to Luke 13. I think there'll be a slide for that on there. Um, That is page 848 in the Red Bibles. This is kind of a complex passage verses 1 through 9. It starts with a little bit of news of the day. Uh, The first few verses are about events that were happening at the time. One is that there were some Galileans who were making sacrifices. They were killed in the temple. They were killed by Pilate. And the verse says that their, their blood was mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. Well, Pilate probably didn't kill them. Probably some of his guards did. But something to that effect happened. Then there's another verse where Jesus gives an example of these 18 people who died at the Tower of Siloam, um, and those people were crushed to death. So they're very violent events that happen, and in both cases, Jesus' audience seems to think that these events occurred to these people because they were sinful, and it was a direct result of their sin that they died. Jesus is trying to dissuade his audience from that and say that no, these people were not more sinful than anyone else, and some of the reasons that that might be assumed that they are sinful um, these events aren 't corroborated well by secular historians, but there 's similar events that were happening at the time that might explain so for the workers at the temple of Siloam, or sorry the, the tower of Siloam, the idea is that there were some workers who were being paid out of the temple's coffers, out of the offering given to the temple. And the Jewish people at the time really felt that that was a terrible way to pay people, that that should be used for God's work. And so this was retribution, that the people were crushed because they got their payment from this potentially unlawful source. Okay, So that's what the audience is thinking. And Jesus is trying to come back, uh, let's see, in verse... 4, in verse 3, he says, uh, No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. So, and then he goes on, and he says in um, verse 4, So, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. So, he's trying to say that sin is not the cause of these these deaths. Then he moves on into a parable. And most of the time, this whole passage is really seen as a repent or die kind of passage. And in fact, that's what the title is, I think. Repent or perish. But I think that the parable he's going to tell here can be viewed in more than one way. It can be certainly interpreted as a do the right thing or you're going to die. Or it can be interpreted in a different way with regard to uh, spiritual hunger and Christ's redemptive power. So let's read the parable together. Verse 6, then he told this parable. Uh, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He, the gardener, replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. If not, you can cut it down. So... There's a lot to unpack in this parable. Um, I'm going to start with the fact that it's a tree that he's using. Now, biblical scholars would probably say that Jesus is choosing to use a tree because the tree is representative of the nation of Israel, and there's a lot of precedent for that. But I also like that it's, it's a tree. It's not a person. Right, it's not a Galilean, it's not a Samaritan, it's not you know some friend that's estranged from you that you have these preconceived biases about. By using a living but non-human example, Jesus is focusing the attention on what he's saying and not who he's saying it about, and I think that's very powerful. So there's a couple of other things going on here. We've got a fig tree, and it's growing. And if you know anything about fig trees um, or any fruit tree, they can make a lot of leaves, they can make a lot of uh, branches without having real good nutrition. In fact, sometimes that'll be frustrating for people trying to grow fruit trees and just keep growing and you never get any fruit. But if they have just the right balance of nutrients in the soil, now you'll get fruit coming off this tree, which is what you intended it for, and that's a good thing. So the tree's not dying, but it's not thriving that's kind of what I'm getting at here. And what causes the tree to thrive? I don't think we have to stretch very far to say Jesus is probably putting himself in the position of a gardener in this parable, and he's going around the tree, and he's digging into the ground, and he's fertilizing it. So Christ is the method by which this tree receives the nutrition it needs to be fruitful. The tree's kind of hungry, right? And if we want to look a little bit deeper and look at some more of the, the reasoning behind things, probably the three years he's referring to in the parable, three years, I look for fruit, there's no fruit, or the three years of his ministry, and we could maybe say, although I didn't see it much in the commentaries, that the whole digging in the ground bit is a reference to his eventual death and burial in the ground. So that's a pretty clear demonstration of Christ being food, food, um, but I think we could even look at something Christ says himself to corroborate that a little bit. If we look in John chapter 3, verse 47, this isn't um, part of the text, but I'll read it to you for this week, but I'll read it to you. He says, "'Very truly I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die.'" I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So, I'm not a biblical scholar, but that probably doesn't need a lot of interpretation. Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. Literally, my body is the food that you need. So, let's accept the idea that Jesus is offering himself as spiritual food. And if we partake of Jesus by believing in his sacrifice and by trying to follow him in our lives as Christians, then we can be spiritually fed. But to what end? What does it mean to be spiritually full? You don't have to go too far in today's lectionary readings to find another reference to Jesus' as spiritual food and what the results of that might be. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, which is on page 931, if you want to read through it. Verses 1 through 13 is the reading for this week. I'm going to be focusing more on the beginning part of the passage. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth in Corinthians, and the church at Corinth was an early Christian church that was having some troubles. If you read through Corinthians the chapters before this. Is, you know, we were arguing about head coverings, who can speak when, who can eat what food. There's lots of different struggles going on. We like to think that we might have some discord in the modern church because some people come from one denomination versus another denomination and they were raised in one way versus another way. But if most of us are kind of raised in the modern United States, there's a lot of Christianity steeped into our culture. And so, many things wouldn't seem too radical to us. Compare that to the early Christian church where you have people coming from pagan backgrounds, you have people coming from Jewish backgrounds, you have people coming from all these different types of ways of life. They're changing their whole culture to be a part of the church. I mean, it was hard. So they're arguing all the time. And I think that may be a different type of spiritual hunger, which we should not overlook. That there's this maybe nameless, shapeless sort of desire in ourselves for connection with God, but there's also desire for connection with other Christians, um, and with other people who are yet to become Christians, and that lacking that is a different type of communal spiritual hunger, which is important. So Paul is is talking to this congregation, and he's using a powerful symbol to try to help bring them together. Let's look at what he uses in verse 1. He's given them a lot of warnings. This is kind of one more warning. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So taking out the need to reinterpret, Paul's saying literally that was Uh, the representation of Christ at the time. Let's think about what that means. The idea of Christ as a universal spiritual food throughout space and time. Now, these people that were being referenced in the Old Testament weren't technically Christians because Christ wasn't born yet, but they were pre-Christians. They were people that were expecting a savior, okay? And if we are thinking about how what we have in common with them, eating the same spiritual food and drink, that kind of brings us together. If you remember the story of the Israelites, what's Paul referencing here, right? What was out on the ground every morning when the Israelites were in exile and they're wandering in the wilderness and they're starving to death, and then they wake up and what's out there? Quiet crowd, I'm going to answer for you. <laughs> manna. Okay, so there was manna on the ground. This is... Kind of weird, but it was, this is the the story, that there were these breadcrumbs, basically, and you could scoop them up, and the people ate them, and they didn't die from starvation, which was great. But does anyone remember what happened if they tried to keep extra manna? Right, so if you haven't read it, the, the text, or haven't read it recently, it went rancid. It was just disgusting. They couldn't keep it for the next day. And that's something that's typically interpreted to mean that the people needed to trust God to continue to provide that miracle day after day. And hoarding it would mean they didn't quite trust God. But I think there's a little different way to look at that. Um, And let's look at it in connection to that parable of the fig tree again. So the fig tree. All right, so the fig tree has been fertilized. It was hungry, it was fertilized. It's creating figs. To what end? the fig tree doesn't need them, right? It wasn't dying, it was surviving. The figs are for creating more fig trees. They contain a seed, they contain some nutrients. If that fig is eaten and a bird flies somewhere, maybe there'll be another fig tree there, maybe a human would take it and plant it somewhere else. So the idea of having been spiritually fed doesn't just mean that the fig tree does great and continues to do well for itself, it has an end. The end is not to hoard the spiritual food, not to hoard the manna, if you want to harken back to that example, but to share it, to put it out to everyone else. So without being too evangelistic, I think we can safely say that by receiving grace from Christ to fulfill our spiritual hunger, we're then enabled to be fruitful, to share Christ with other people. And I want to be careful not to think of that as just standing, me standing up here sharing this message with you, or maybe you going and standing on the corner of the street and trying to evangelize people that way. Think about what it really means to share Christ, to be the hands of feet and feet of Christ in this world. It, it goes so far beyond just a simple sharing a tract or something like that. It's, it's really what the vision is um, for Christians. So, as we start to transition, just like Paul actually transitions in this chapter, to a time of communion, you have to think about what it means to be spiritually fed and realizing that you don't have to be spiritually perfect before you start to share Christ with other people. When you recognize your connection to other spiritually hungry people throughout space, throughout time, you realize that there really is a level playing field. We're all hungry. We're all blessed. We're all fed in the same manner. So we should all be able to feed other people in the same manner. We've got this wonderful um, verse that is in the end of, well, kind of the middle of Corinthians 10. I'll just read it to you. It's after Paul's done warning everyone about the doom and gloom of not following the things that he said. (laughs) Um, And then he goes on and says in verse 16, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. We're going to come to the communion table now, and I want you to think again. Remember that time that you were so, so hungry. And now think about the time that you felt the most full, the most fed, the most just comforted and satisfied with the food that you have received. And realize that in the symbolism here, that's what Christ is offering. Um, What's being offered in a relationship with Jesus and also the components here at the communion table is communion with Christ, communion with others throughout space and time and in this very room. And it's that feeling of just just belonging. Um, This is the physical representation of spiritual food, the body and blood of Christ. So I'll just pray for that, and then we can partake of it. Dear God, thank you so much for this time that we've been able to spend together. Thank you for the words that you've given me to speak this morning, and thank you for the gift of Uh, the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, giving us the chance to repent of our sins, to follow him, and to be fruitful in sharing, as the hands and feet of Christ, his vision for the world. In your name, amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.